Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> the ninth chapter. As you turn there, let me just uh, again invite you to return this evening. Uh, this evening we'll be at Camp Good News, and there's a, a map of that on our web map to Camp Good News on our website or in your bulletin if you have one of those. Uh, so 6 o'clock this evening, Camp Good News, we'll be looking at Lamentations together and looking at how God calls his community to go, to go through grief and suffering together. So I look forward to that time with you this evening as well. Luke chapter 9, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We looked at this uh, Jesus and this boy with an unclean spirit last week, and uh, Jesus again foretelling his death, and now we're in verse 46. So we're going to be reading verses 46 through 48 together this morning. If you'd stand in honor of God as we read his word together. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, I'll be reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. May we be encouraged through God's word this morning. You are. You may be seated. Let's pray as we look at God's word together and continue to worship him. And Father, we are thankful that you reveal yourself to us in your word, and we are thankful for this portion of your word that reveals what true greatness looks like, and we pray that you would humble our hearts as we look at your word together this morning. We pray this for your glory. And in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, perhaps some of you are looking for some vacation property in Florida, and if so, I may have an opportunity for you. This past week, the Wall Street Journal and some other news outlets reported that there is a a property for sale near Miami Beach. Uh, The asking price is a little high, $60 million dollars. Um, but you get quite a, quite a lot for $60 million. The, the home is 30,000 square feet. There are 10 bedrooms, 7 bathrooms. There's a two-story waterfall. There's, I like this, there's an Olympic-sized indoor pool. The sand on the property has been imported from the Bahamas. And what's more, the, the house is exquisitely de- decorated they traveled, the designers traveled, traveled to Italy in order to inspect personally the, the quarry that the marble for the master bedroom was coming from. This place is top-notch. And if you think $60 million, a, a little high, there's some good news. The furniture is included, and so you won't need to worry about furnishing as you move into this new property in Florida. Now, if you were able to afford this $60 million home, I would hope, first of all, that you would remember me and invite me to come visit I love Florida. Uh, secondly, if you purchase this $60 million home, I would think that you would be tempted, at least, to feel like you had reached a certain level of greatness, a certain level of success. And certainly, the people around you, as you told them, I've, I purchased this, this little vacation home in Florida, $60 million, the people around you would certainly feel, wow, that person has been successful in life. They've maintained and attained a certain level of greatness. Perhaps uh, you will never purchase a 
mansion, a $60 million vacation home. But my guess is that many of us, if not most of us in this room, are pursuing greatness in some form. We're walking along some path, pursuing greatness at the end of that path, and for various ones of us, that, that path looks different. Perhaps that your path to greatness is, you're walking along the path of greatness with, with business shoes. You are seeking greatness in your place of employment, and, and perhaps you're hopeful that as you pursue greatness, you'll attain certain things in your job, you'll receive accolades from your employer, the people around you, your fellow employees, and your path to greatness is in the business world. Or perhaps your path to greatness is in the sports arena. If you're a student in school and you're excited about the, the gifts God has given you athletically, and so you're, you're pursuing greatness and accolades, the, the praises of men and women, through sports. Or maybe, uh, like me, you weren't gifted athletically, and so you're, you're relying upon your brain. Not necessarily like me, but uh, that analogy died. But you're pursuing you're pursuing academics, okay? Maybe your greatness is being pursued as you pursue the academic world, and you're hopeful for scholarships, and you're hopeful that you'll receive accolades of other people as you get good grades and as you, you advance in degrees. Or maybe you're a parent, and you say, well, I, I, I'm not seeking greatness in the business world or, or in the academic world. I pursue greatness in my family, and greatness for me is whenever my children are successful. And greatness for me is whenever other people look at my children and say, wow, how wonderful your children are. And they, they come to me for advice and parenting. Greatness for me is whenever my children give me accolades. What is your path to greatness? What is the scorecard that you're using to determine how successful you are in life? My suspicion is that many of us have some sort of path to greatness that we're pursuing And what I want to suggest to you this morning from God's word is that the path to greatness is not marched upon by the boots of the victorious warrior. The path to greatness is not run upon by the cleats of the athlete. The path to greatness is not walked upon with the, the winged tip shoes of the Fortune 500 CEO. The path to greatness, Jesus tells us, is walked upon by the bloodied, blistered, bare feet of the servant. The path to greatness is pursued truly by the servant. The one who is pursuing service in God's kingdom is the one who is pursuing greatness. What I want to do in our, our time together this morning is, is look at this passage, and as we look at this passage, see three principles to pursuing greatness with un this understanding that pursuing servanthood is pursuing greatness. The first principle we see is this. The first principle we see as we pursue greatness is that we must resist the urge to exalt ourselves. You must resist the urge to exalt yourself. That's what we see in verse 46. And before we look at verse 46, uh, for those of you uh, who may not have been here in a while or may be visiting with, with us for the first time, let me give you a little bit of the context of verse 46. I turn back just a few chapters to Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Plain. And as he gives this Sermon on the Plain, he's describing for the people kingdom ethics. 
In other words, he's announcing this, this good news that God's kingdom is coming, and he's telling people, look, if you want to participate in God's kingdom, here's how you need to, to live your life. Here's what ethical conduct looks like in God's kingdom. And what he does is he takes ethical norms and he turns them on their head. For example, look down in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6. He says, instead of saying, blessed or happy are those who are, of you who are rich, he says, no, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. How should you respond when, when persecuted? Well, you should be sad, right? No, Jesus says, instead, you should rejoice. Be happy about this because in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. He goes on and then he says, woe to the rich, woe to those who are full, woe to those who are last now, woe to all when all people speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. And then he turns ethical conduct on its head again. He says, look, instead of hating those, hating those who hate you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those. So Pray for those who abuse you. That's the new ethical system that Jesus calls his people to. It's turning societal norms on their heads. Verse 30, give to those who beg from you. And for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. This is radical teaching. Instead of looking at a person and deciding, well, look, uh, this person can pay me back, uh, therefore I'll, I'll give them money. This person is nice to me, therefore I'll be nice to them. That's normal. That, that's normative ethics treating people the way that they treat me, reciprocal relationships. Jesus says, no, that's not the way the kingdom of God is going to operate. Here's the new ethical standard for how you treat one another. Now, now he's, we come to chapter 9, so turn over to chapter 9 again. And as we've come to chapter 9, we've seen some amazing things about Jesus. Jesus has been declared to be the Christ. Look at verse 20. Peter answers and says, you're the Christ of God. And then look at verse 22. Jesus says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, he talk, we see uh, in the story of the transfiguration beginning in verse 28, there's this, this, this transfiguration. Jesus' form changes. The glory of God that's always been within Jesus as fully God is now manifested visibly. His glory is displayed. He's there with Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his coming suffering. So he's declared to be the Christ by Peter, and he talks to them about suffering. He's shown to be uh, God on the Mount of Transfiguration. He talks about suffering. And then we looked at last week, he demonstrates his deity as he shows his power over the demon-possessed boy. And then verse 44, let these words, he says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And so Jesus, we see in Luke 9, as he continues to display his power, at the same time is talking about his suffering. The greatest among them is about to suffer. And his disciples consistently do this. What is he? Look at the end of right before we're right before verse 46. They didn't understand this saying. It was concealed from them. They didn't perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. We don't get suffering, the disciples are saying. That's the context of verse 46. 
Jesus has been declaring new ethics, a new ethical standard, a new way to relate to people as you enter the kingdom of God, and he's been talking about his messiahship, his deity, and suffering. Verse 46 tells us the disciples are engaged in a dispute, and from the Gospel of Mark, we find out that they were engaged in this dispute on the way to Capernaum. As they're traveling, there's this argument that arose among them, verse 46, as to which of them was the greatest. You can kind of picture the disciples traveling this road to Capernaum, and they think Jesus can't hear what they're saying, and so they begin to argue amongst themselves about who's the greatest. And I don't think the argument was, Thomas, you're the greatest. No, no, Peter, you're the greatest. I I think their argument was, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And on what basis would the disciples be saying that that they're the greatest? Well, uh, a couple passages in Scripture kind of point to things that people in this culture would consider great. One of these, one of the people in our our baptism this morning alluded to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul's talking about how Jewish he is. He says, look, if anyone's going to have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. He says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul would say this to the people of Corinth. He'd say, look, consider your calling, brothers. You weren't great according to this world's standards. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, in their culture that the disciples exist in, a person is considered great for many of the same reasons that a person in our culture is considered great. How much access do you have to wealth? How much access do you have to to noble people? What was the, the status of your birth? How wise are you? How Jewish are you? Those were the standards of greatness in this culture. And so you can imagine the disciples, they're walking along the road of Capernaum. Jesus is up ahead, and, and they kind of start making little comments. Andrew goes, hey, guys, just so you know, none of you would be here without me. Remember, I brought some of you to Jesus. They're walking along. Thomas goes, look, Andrew, that's really cute, but uh, I'm the thinker of the group. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is going to need some thinkers. He's going to need some, some critical, analytical thinking, and I'm the skeptic of the group, and he's going to need people like me. And Peter says, guys, guys, guys. Really? Look, uh, I hate to bring this up, but have you noticed that whenever Jesus goes places, he kind of asks me, James, and John to go with him? I'm part of the inner group. I'm not supposed to say anything, but a few days ago, we were on the mountain of transfiguration. (laughs) It was amazing. I can't talk about it yet. But when I do... I think we'll all see. And there was something else that happened recently. Remember, help my memory a little bit. Jesus said something about, I'm the something, or the, the, oh, the rock. And uh, upon this, he's going to establish his, his church. And he's going to give me the keys to the kingdom or something. About, do you guys remember that? How did my name get to be Peter? Didn't Jesus change my name? James chimes in, look, guys, I'm from a prominent family. I'm a zealous guy. I'm the older brother. I'm going to be greatest in the kingdom. By the way, James would be first eventually, wouldn't he? James would be the first to be martyred for his faith. The disciples are looking inward. 
And the disciples are, are thinking about themselves. And as they think about themselves, their natural tendency and ours is to what? Exalt self. We need very little encouragement for people to tell us how wonderful we are. It comes as no surprise, as no shock, whenever wonderful things happen to us, does it? What's surprising to us is whenever other people don't see how wonderful and how great and how marvelous we are. The, Greek, uh, the Roman poet Ovid retold the tragic story of Narcissus in his poem Metamorphosis. He says this, remember the story of Narcissus. Narcissus is this handsome young man and everybody loves him. There's this nymph Echo that falls in love with him. He's rude to her, rejects her love, and it's declared by Nemesis that, uh, that Narcissus is going to face the same pain that other people have felt in loving him. And so Ovid tells us this scene in which Narcissus comes to this pond after hunting. Ovid's words kind of ooze off the page as he describes this grotesque scene, this unsettling scene. He writes this. He says, Narcissus finds this place delightful and the spring refreshing for thirst. As he tried to quench his thirst inside him, deep within, another thirst was growing, for he saw an image in the pool and fell in love with that unbodied shape and found a substance in what was only shadow. He wants himself, continues Ovid. The loved becomes the lover, the seeker sought, the kindler burns. It's a grotesque picture of self-love. He stares at himself in this pond, unable to turn away, and mourning the loss of himself. He gazes lovingly into this, this water, soaking in every detail of his beautiful face, and then he wastes away until there's nothing of substance left of him becomes this, this flower. That's the condition of the human heart. You and I love ourselves. And it takes no great urging for us to exalt ourselves and find ourselves in positions of prominence. It's easy to, for the disciples, as they're walking along this road to Capernaum, to think of good, legitimate reasons that they should be number one. Let me give you some examples of how we are tempted to exalt ourselves. Let me give you just seven manifestations, several ways that self-exaltation manifests itself. And these are taken, some of these are taken from Stuart Scott. I have 16 written down. Um, I, I don't want to be too mean to you this morning. Let's just focus on, on seven of these. See if you see yourself in, in any of these temptations. How does self-exaltation, uh, putting ourselves forward, how does that manifest itself? Well, one way is this, minimizing our own sin and maximizing the sins of others. A person who's, who's uh, facing the, the sin of, of self-exaltation, of, of pride, is going to be a person who minimizes their own sin and magnifies the sin of other people. Their sins are sure bad, but as they look around them, they're shocked at the things that other people do. Remember, remember a few months ago when we were in Luke 7, Simon the Pharisee? Simon the Pharisee is just shocked at this woman that falls down at Jesus' feet. And what does he say in his heart? If Jesus knew what sort of woman this was, he wouldn't let her do this. What do we see, though? Simon needed to be down at Jesus' feet as well. 
one of the ways that this this sin of self-exaltation manifests itself is a tendency to minimize our own sin and maximize the sin of of other people. Another way that self-exaltation manifests itself is having a high opinion of your own importance, your gifts, and your abilities. Do you ever find yourself saying this at work? Boy, if only my coworkers realized how brilliant I was. Why doesn't my boss get my abilities? Why doesn't he understand or she understand how wonderful I am to this company? Or in your home, why doesn't my spouse recognize what a wonderful person I am? In the church, why don't other people in the church recognize how gifted I am in in this area or that area? Self-exaltation causes us to have a high opinion of ourselves. I was interacting with some uh, first-time authors, and they were talking about their, their published works. And they were kind of lamenting about how their publisher wasn't really getting behind their books. And they said, boy, if the, if the publisher really just understood how monumental my work was, they would be advertising in the New York Times, and they'd be, they'd be uh, coming out with 10,000 books in the first edition, just on and on and on, right? Really? Like, your publisher wants your book to fail? Huh. Maybe... Maybe you get just as much publicity as they think you deserve. It's true in so many areas of our lives. Another way that self-exaltation manifests itself is disunity in the church or in relationships. Another way that self-exaltation manifests itself is in a tendency to, to dominate conversations, to speak a lot. What does James 1.19 say? Let everyone be what? Quick to hear slow to speak, slow to become angry. Proverbs 10, 19 says, where words are many, sin is not absent. Do you find yourself having a tendency to always feel like you need to inject your brilliant thoughts into the conversation? People just need to hear what you have to say. You just need to, to, I call it filibustering. It's like you're a politician that just needs to to, to run out the clock. That's a a sign of self-exaltation, a desire to exalt yourself. So minimizing your own sin, having a high opinion of your own importance, uh, seeing relationships characterized by disunity, uh, dominating conversations, all these are are signs of the the pride of self-exaltation. Also, a lack of service, a lack of service, a lack of involvement in in serving other people in the church or in your life, your family, your your friends. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in them. A person that's not involved in service is failing to be humble and do the things that God has called them to do. A refusal to admit that you're wrong is a sign of self-exaltation. An inability to to recognize I'm wrong and I need to ask others for forgiveness. Finally, another example of the sin of self-exaltation is a lack of respect for authority. You believe that you're smarter than the police officer. You believe that you're smarter than politicians. You believe that you're smarter than your kids' students. Or student uh, teacher. You believe that you're smarter than your teacher if you're a student. That's a sign of self-exaltation. I'm better than the people who God has placed sovereignly in positions of authority over me. Manifestations of humility are the opposite. The person who's humble focuses on Christ. They're overwhelmed as they think about God's undeserved grace and goodness. They see themselves as no better than others. They're thankful for criticism or reproof. They're, they're involved in service. They're quick to admit when they're wrong. They minimize others' sins and 
are acutely aware of their own. A person who's going to have a right relationship with God must resist the urge to exalt themselves. Because a person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ must begin by saying, I am a sinner. I love the testimonies that the young people gave this morning, just how often God's grace was mentioned, and a recognition of their own sin and God's grace as a response to their sin. Wasn't that wonderful? A person who rightly understands the gospel, understands that they should not exalt themselves, that they need to humble themselves and come to God, recognizing that only God can give them the grace that they need, only God can offer them forgiveness. And so the person that rightly understands the gospel places their faith and trust in Jesus, asking for God's forgiveness and receives it. The first principle as we consider how a person becomes great, you must Resist the urge to exalt yourself. Second principle is this. The second principle is this. You must show special concern for the weak. You must show special concern for the weak. Here's what happens next. Now, uh, they've been traveling along the road. Uh, Mark tells us they come to Capernaum. They, They come to this house. And Jesus asks them, what were you talking about? They don't want to say, but what does Luke tell us? Luke tells us that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. He knew their intellectual processing, the the factors that they were using to discern who was great and who was not great. And so Jesus, as he's talking about what makes a person great or not great, he does something very interesting. He says that he took a child and put him by his side. I want to do something I haven't done before, a little nervous about this, but Noah, I want you to come on up here. This is my son, Noah. I mean, let's see how he behaves. This is a kid, Noah. And Jesus does something very interesting. He's sitting down. Jesus is sitting down. He's surrounded by the disciples. And Jesus takes this little kid, and he places him in the middle of everybody. This is hugely shaming for the disciples. This is the position of utmost prominence. And a person in this society that's under the age of 12 was considered a waste of time for a grown man to spend time with. He couldn't learn the Torah. He couldn't be be taught the things of God. And so it was considered a waste of time. And what Jesus is saying is, look, this little boy, this little child is greater than any of you. And the way that you become great is to receive a little one, a person who's weak, and care for them. Now, now, why is that? Noah, how are you doing, buddy? Good. Good. Noah, are you worried about what you're going to eat for lunch today? No. No, he says. Who, who's going to give you lunch today? Mom. Or dad, right? <laughs> Mom. Mom. Are, are you worried about where you're going to go to sleep tonight? No. No? Why not? Where are you going to sleep tonight? Where are you going to sleep? Oh, your bed, you think? Yeah. yeah, sleep in your bed. Good, good. All right, well, thanks, buddy. Thanks, appreciate that, Noah. Noah, has, uh, Noah is a precious little boy. And Noah, you got it, buddy? Noah isn't concerned about where he's going to, to sleep tonight. Noah isn't concerned about where he's going to, to eat. Why? Because mom, and to a lesser extent dad, uh, takes care of those things. Now, sometimes uh, people say, 
oh, I learned so much from watching children, and and maybe Jesus is putting this child here to, to show how beautiful and innocent they are. That's ridiculous. Children are wicked. No offense, buddy. No offense. They are, right? They just haven't had as much practice as we have yet. But what do we learn from children? What do we learn from children? We learn what it looks like for the weak to trust the strong. Noah has never come to me and said, Dad, uh, you know, I heard you and Mom talking about finances, and I got a little something for you. Here's 100 bucks. Spend it well. Why doesn't he do that? He has nothing to offer us, tax break. But besides that, you know, he has, he has nothing of value materialistically to offer his mom and myself. We take care of him. God loves taking care of the weak. God loves children. Matthew 18 tells us this. It says that similar story here, the same story. Jesus says this, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you believe that? Do you? Do you believe that we as a church should have a special concern and love for children? Would it be better for us as a church to not even exist than to cause the weak among us, the little ones, to stumble? Matthew 19, Jesus says this in verse 13, he says, The little children were brought to him that he might lay their hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Our culture is not a culture that looks on children as a valuable resource. I was in a seminary class one time. There were eight students in the seminary class. And as we talked about children, uh, they told us, uh, uh, as we talked among the seminary class about children, three of the men in that class said that they had been advised by people in the medical community to have an abortion. One of them because the child wasn't going to live long outside the womb. Another because the child was uh, going to be born with Down syndrome. And another simply because they they were older parents. We live in a culture that doesn't value the weak. And at Bethany Community Church, if we are going to be great, if we are going to pursue greatness on God's terms, what must we do? We must show a special concern for those who are weak. Just as we go to our Heavenly Father totally and completely and thoroughly dependent upon Him to meet all our needs, so we as individuals and as a church must be a place to whom the weak can turn and find their needs met in a loving environment. That's where our church is headed by God's grace to continue to grow in this. Our church must be a church that treats the least among us as the most valuable, the most precious. After all, it's the the weak among us who have, I believe, perhaps in in some ways, the, the best ability to bring glory and honor to God as in their weakness they demonstrate complete trust and faith in God.
It's where our church is, is headed. The weak aren't an afterthought, but the very center of all that we do in terms of ministry is we seek to glorify God and caring for them. Let me give you just, just an application of our children's ministry because that's the application Jesus gives here. He, I believe the larger principle is that we have to show concern for all the weak, but the specific illustration that Jesus gives is with a child. You see, it's a very vivid demonstration of, of the weak among us. In our church, we have an abundance of the gift of children, right? We have children like, I, I've never seen children in a church before. We are just blessed beyond belief. And you and I have the opportunity to engage in ministering to these children as a community of faith. You know what I'd like to see? One of the things I'd like to see is I would like to see, and I haven't talked to, to Craig and Debbie Joe about this, so I hope I'm not getting ahead of, of them. I'm not going to look at them wherever they are. You know, right now, uh, the Hodges and, and many other people do a great job recruiting people for ministry in our children's ministry. As we recruit over this summer and, and over the, the end of the spring and the summer, my prayer would be that just people pour over their, those sign-up sheets and get involved in children's ministry like nobody's business. Right now, we have people that serve during the, the worship hour, and they serve on teams, and essentially they are serving three months out of the year, scattered throughout the year. My, my hope would be that we have so many people desiring to pour into the lives of the weak among us, the children among us, that, that people are serving a month out of the year as they're involved in, in caring for the children. Wouldn't that be a, a beautiful thing? Amen. That, there she is. Okay. I'm not in trouble now. I'm not in trouble. What a, what a great opportunity for our church as we think about having a passion for the weak. If we're going to be a church that honors God, a church that is great, we're going to be a church that shows special concern for the weak. What's the third characteristic here, the third principle of pursuing greatness? Thirdly, we see this, uh, you, must become, you must become a servant of all. You must become the servant of all. What does Jesus say next? He says, he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. You keep your fingers there in Luke chapter 9 and turn over to Philippians. Philippians is past, you go past the Gospels, past Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then you come to the book of Philippians. And in Philippians, we see some amazing things about the person, Jesus Christ. In fact, as you're turning to Philippians, let me read a little bit from Colossians as you're turning to Philippians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 1, we read this about Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ, by the blood of, the, of his cross. How great is Jesus Christ? Well, Christ is God. He was in the beginning with God. He created all things. All things exist 
for him, and not only do all things exist for him, he holds all things together. And he's the head of the church. There's no one in the church that's greater than Jesus Christ. The church exists for Christ's glory. Furthermore, the church was brought into being by Christ. He says this in verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. How great is Jesus Christ? He is the greatest. He is the greatest above, above all. There is no one who even comes close to existing as Christ exists. He's the reason for everything. He holds all things together. Now, what do we see about Jesus in Philippians 2? Philippians 2 Paul says this, beginning in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, remember all those things we just talked about from Colossians chapter 1, even though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul goes on and talks about his exaltation. Jesus says here in Luke 9, over and over again, that he's going to suffer. He says it as Peter declares that he's the Christ. He's talking about it with Moses and Elijah as he's in his glory. And he's just said it in verse 44. And now he says this, He who is least among all of you, he is the one who is great. Remember I told you in Luke chapter 6 as Jesus gave the Sermon on the Plain, he redefined ethics. He says kingdom ethics is different than normative ethics. Normative ethics says, I give you money if you can pay me back. Kingdom ethics says, I'm going to give to you expecting nothing in return. Normative ethics says, you slap me, you better watch out because the slap's coming back. You dishonor me, I'm going to dishonor you. Normative ethics says, you hate me, I hate you. God's kingdom ethics are different. They turn that whole system on its head. And not only in God's kingdom is the way that we treat one another ethically different, prominence in God's kingdom is different. What's normative in our culture? What's normative is that a person strives and strives and, and gains and, and gains prominence, and as they gain prominence, they gain position and certain perks that go with their position. That's normative. It's, it's, it's the way the world operates. The guy at the, or the girl, or the guy at the top of the ladder is, is the person that gets the most esteem and the most respect, the most perks. There's something different about the kingdom. In the kingdom, the one who is least among all of you is the one who is great. 
that turns greatness on its head. Now, what does that mean? If you're an employer, if, it's, if you're an employer, you say, you know what, I know that I exist to serve those beneath me. If I'm a parent, I know that I exist to, to serve and care for my children. That doesn't mean giving them everything they want. It means I exist to serve them. If I'm a husband, I exist to serve my wife. If I'm a person that's in a position of, of prominence in any sort of organization, I recognize that I'm the least. That's a major paradigm shift for the disciples. They don't grasp it. We fail to grasp it as well. Greatness, greatness is defined not on how much glory and prominence are you able to bring yourself, but on how much glory and prominence and exaltation you're able to turn to God. That's greatness in God's kingdom system. Here's a question for you. In this room, whose needs are of greater importance than your own? Question, in this room, kind of look around for a second, whose needs are of greater importance than your needs? Whose needs take priority over yours? Answer, everyone's. Everyone's needs in this room take priority over your own needs. The least among us is the greatest. I was reading a story several years ago about Dennis Kozlowski. Businessweek ran an article on him. He was the CEO of uh, Tyco. Is that right, Tyco? Tyson, Tyco, something. He was the CEO. And he was, at, at the height of his power, he was like gobbling up a company every business day almost. I mean, the guy was phenomenal. Businessweek says the, the more prominent he became, the more perks he received, and the more perks he felt he deserved, and he began to, to embezzle from the company, allegedly. Now, what happened? He believed the press clippings. He believed in his own greatness. He pursued it. Whenever I was in college, went into a, a bookstore, and the guy, uh, I, was, I was working for a, the campus newspaper trying to sell some ads, and the guy at this bookstore said, I, I was wearing a tie, uh, so he thought I was, you know, a business guy or something. He goes, I want to hire you to work in my bookstore. I said, fantastic. I don't like what I'm doing right now. He said, I'm going to make you one of the most successful business people around. I said, wow, that, that sounds pretty good. Uh, and he said, you know, he, he'd worked for Ross Perot. He'd worked for IBM at the start of the company. I mean, he was, he'd been very successful in business. So I came the, the first day of my new job there, and, and he said, all right, you ready? I said, I'm ready. He goes, go clean the toilet. He was a Christian man. He understood that for a person to pursue true greatness in any field, they need to become the least. Here's some questions for application for you as you think about this last principle. You must become the servant of all. Here's a question for you. Uh, first of all, uh, do you have a sense of entitlement? Do you have a sense of entitlement in the church? Do you say, you know what, uh, because, because I'm so young or because I'm so old or because I'm so single or because I have so small children, I deserve certain things for other people to do for me. Do you have a sense of entitlement? Because I've been here so long, because I'm here, I've been here so short a time, 
just like the disciples, you and I can always point to things in our lives that should give us certain benefits. Do I have a sense of entitlement that people in the church kind of owe me? Another question for you, as you think about this this principle, you must become servant of all, do I judge my service in the church on the basis of how other people are serving God? In other words, I'm not necessarily doing what God's called me to do. I know I need to do some more. There's some other things in other people's lives I could be doing, but, you know, wow, look at, look at that guy. I mean, that guy's really not serving God. I'm doing better than, than so-and-so, right? Do I judge my service in the church and in other people's lives on the basis of what God has called me to do or on the basis of what others are doing? It's a question for application. Another question, do I become angry when my needs are not met by others? Another question, do I believe that my life circumstances exempt me from God's commandment to serve other people? Do I believe that my life circumstances, I'm so busy, or I have so many children, or I have no children, or I have, I'm so busy at work, or I have such a position over here, do I believe that my life circumstances are somehow so unique that I've been exempted by God from his instruction for me to serve other people? It's an important question, I believe, for us to ask. We need to change our paradigm about greatness in the church, greatness in the community, greatness in the kingdom of God. I want to close with a a prayer from a Puritan work called Valley of Vision about humility. Before I do, let me just encourage you. Do you want to pursue greatness? Greatness is not going to be walked upon. The path to greatness is not going to be walked upon by the soldier. It's not walked upon by the CEO. It's not walked upon by the, the athlete or the scholar. The path to greatness is walked upon by the bloodied, bruised, blistered, bare feet of the servant. Do you want to pursue greatness in God's kingdom? I I hope you do, brothers and sisters. Pursue it through service. Let me read this prayer, and I encourage you to to pray it in your heart. It's a prayer of humility. Then I'm going to close in a prayer as well. O Father, let not my pride swell my heart. My nature is the mire beneath my feet, the dust to which I shall return. Whatever difference of form and intellect is mine is a free grant of thy goodness. Every faculty of mind and body is thy undeserved gift. Low as I am as a creature, I am lower still as a sinner. I've trampled thy law times without number. Sin's deformity is stamped upon me, darkens my brow, and touches me with corruption. So, Father, make me, make us the lowest of the lowly, that our spiritual riches may exceedingly abound. When we leave duties undone, may condemning thoughts strip us of pride, deepen us in devotion to thy service, and quicken us to more watchful care. Father, when we are tempted to think highly of ourselves, grant us to see the wily power of our spiritual enemy. Help us to stand with wary eye on the watchtower of faith, and to cling with determined grasp to our humble Lord. If we fall, let us hide ourselves in your, our Redeemer's righteousness. And when we escape, may we ascribe all deliverance to thy grace. Keep us humble, meek, lowly. Father, that is the prayer of my heart. 
My prayer is that you protect this church from danger of self-exaltation. Cause us to pursue holiness and righteousness through service. Holiness and righteousness through faith in you that, that, that results in service. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your glory alone. Amen.